The scripture reading for this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 25. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and, I, and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. This is the word of the Lord. For the past several months, we've been looking at the life of David, the longest narrative of a single human life in all of ancient literature, not just the Bible, in all of ancient literature. And we're at the same time observing the period known as the Advent, that is the coming of the King, the coming of Christ, because uh, the coming of David really points to the coming of Christ. And so it's very appropriate as we wrap up this series on David, it's very appropriate for the Advent. Now, the life of David teaches us this. There are things that you have, if you have these things in your life, it's going to make your life. But if you don't have these things in your life, it's going to break your life. Things like humility, friendship, faithfulness, repentance. Today we're going to address the ability to face, the ability to process suffering, tremendous difficulty in our lives without turning bitter, without despairing. Now, if you know anything about David at this point in the text, David, his life had completely blown up. But he knew he was forgiven by God. And and we looked at this beautiful psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, last week. But David endures tremendous suffering. And so there are three lessons we're going to learn about suffering today. And it's covered in three acts in this text. What suffering is... How do we respond to suffering, or how should we respond to suffering? How do we recover from our suffering? What it is, 
How do we respond? How do we recover? Now, three acts. How, what it is, that's David. He falls to the ground. It's the narrative portion where he's falling to the ground. Uh, how do we respond to suffering? That's we see David wrestling on the ground with God. And thirdly, uh, how do we recover from our suffering? That's David being able to get up. First, what it is. Act one, what it is. David falling to the ground. Now, David spent nights, it says in this text. He spent nights lying on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside uh, to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. That's what the text says. Why? David's infant son, unknown son, through Bathsheba, was struck with an illness, and he lay there dying. And David instantly falls to the ground. Now, what is he doing on the ground? Part of the reason he's on the ground is because that was the posture of prayer in those days. He was praying. He was praying to God. But that's not the only reason. The reason why we know that is because, notice, the elders, they're trying to get him up from the ground. Certainly, they, it didn't mean that they were trying to get him to stop praying. David is on the ground because he's just absolutely demolished. He's crushed. He can't even stand up. That's where David is. He's suffering so deeply, he can't even get up. Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to talk to you as a father here, not as a pastor. Okay, I'm going to talk to you as a, a father, not necessarily as a preacher. If you don't die young, the fathers will tell you this, if you don't die young, obviously if you do, that's a tragedy in and of itself. If you don't die young, you're going to have, at some point in your life, on-the-floor suffering. This life is designed to crush you. This life is designed to just beat you up until you ultimately lie on the floor. One way or another, it's going to get you on the ground. I want to talk to you as a father. It's going to test the very foundations of who you are. At the least, you're going to face the death of someone you love. At the very least. At the least. No matter who you are, Something at some point in time is going to crush you. Don't let your youth fool you. Don't let your youthfulness fool you. Don't let your health today fool you. This is a life sentence, and life is, is going to get bad at some point. Here's David, the king. The king, the chosen king, and yet he is broken. He is grieving. His life is just an utter mess of slobber and spit and tears, and, and he's crawling on the floor. He's rolling around on the floor. And then he gets up. Now, at some point, he just gets up. It's an incredible shock. Even the servants are amazed. Now, they're com- incredibly confused because they thought it would be the other way around, that he would be up and walking and then crushed when he finds out his son would be dead. But instead, he's rolling around the floor, and at some point, he gets up. Why does he get up? The Bible says, on one hand, no matter how hard you try, you aren't ever going to be able to avoid falling or collapsing on the ground. That's pretty much point one. Suffering is universal. On the floor, suffering is universal. But it's possible to get up. Now, how does David get up? It really depends on what you do on the ground, which is our second point. Act two, how you respond to suffering. David, in Act 2, is wrestling with God on the ground. There are three things that David grasps. 
when he's down on the floor. And we see this contextually uh, in the text. We see this in the text. David grasps these things when he's crushed on the ground and he's able to get up, which basically means that if we grasp these things, we're going to be able to get up. We're on the floor, crushed in our suffering. If you don't grasp these things, you're not going to ever truly be able to recover. Now, the first thing he learned, the first thing he learned was that his suffering was not punishment. It wasn't payback. This isn't God's way of paying him back because of his sin. Now, you've got to remember the background. It's tremendous. You've got to remember the background. David had an affair with one of his best friend's wife, Bathsheba, and he gets her pregnant. And not only does he get her pregnant, um, what he does is he arranges to have uh, her husband then killed in battle. This is one of his best friends. He arranges to have him killed in battle along with some other people to make it seem legitimate. And uh, this is basically to cover over everything that has happened. And he seemed to be successful. But the text says, but God saw. God saw what David had done. And he sends Nathan the prophet to tell David to basically charge him with his sin. And, uh, and, and David repents. Verse 13 that we read here is basically a sum of all of Psalm chapter 51. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And, and then he has a baby, this infant child, this born to David and Bathsheba in their sinfulness, and he's struck by God with an illness. Struck by God. Now, a superficial reading of this text allows us to say that, well, that's because obviously God is seeking justice here. God is trying to punish David. If you read it superficially, you're going to say, oh, this is one of the reasons why I don't like the Bible, because here's God. He's such a vindictive, cruel, and angry God. He's almost cruel. But you have to read it more carefully. Verse 13, it begins with God saying to Nathan, through Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But. You are not going to die. You are forgiven. But. The Old Testament, whenever, whenever it says, the Lord has taken away your sin, it's very, very specific in that language, what he's saying here. What he's basically saying is, the Lord is not holding you legally responsible, legally liable for what you've done. The Lord is not seeking repu- retribution. The Lord is not seeking punitive measure here. In other words, you're not going to die because that conspiring murder, committing murder, adultery, these were all capital offenses. But he says, first, you're not being punished. The Lord has taken away your sin. Second, you're not going to die. Third, very, very clear. He says, but, but, you are pardoned, but you're going to suffer. The son born to you will die. And, and that's an amazing thing. You're pardoned, but you're going to suffer. Why the suffering? Because it sounds like punishment. Why the suffering? If, you read, if you've ever read the book of Job in the, in the Old Testament, the entire book of Job, very, very famous text, this righteous man who's struck, he's afflicted in many ways, on many levels. He's suffering throughout this text. The entire book was written to refute the counsel given to Job by his own friends. The entire book was written to refute that. What was Job's friends? What was their view? Their view is very simple, very common, even in our modern day, that if you have a good life, it must be because you're living right. The corollary to that being, if you are having a terrible life in your life, if your life is terrible, it must be because you've done something wrong and God is punishing you. People who live right are going to have good lives. People who do not live right 
are going to have bad lives. That was Job's friends and their counsel to Job. And the entire book of Job was written to refute that view, to go against that view. God is, you know, God is punishing you, Job. In reality, uh, what you see here in the book of Job is that people who live right, the people that God loves, can suffer horribly. And we see this. Look at Jesus, the most perfect person to ever have walked the earth, and yet he suffers throughout his entire life throughout his life. So it can't possibly mean that people who just, that good people are the only ones who deserve a good life. And that bad people only deserve bad lives. Why did David need to know this? And I'm telling you, not only did David need to hear this, we need it also. David would never have gotten off the floor if he didn't know that suffering, that his suffering was not a result of punishment. And here's the reason why. If you assume the viewpoint of Job's friends, the common viewpoint that if you live right, then, then you should have a good life. And if you have a bad life, it means that God is punishing you. What happens when you're trying to live, you know, what happens is when you're trying to live the right type of life and, and ho- crushing horror, just suffering just enters in. There's only two possibilities, two conclusions you can make or two results that will happen. One, you're going to say, I deserve it. That's one conclusion. And as a result, you're going to hate yourself. You're just going to, it's lots of self-loathing. Or you're going to conclude, I don't deserve it. And you're going to hate God. You're going to hate your life. And, and most people, they're either going to hate themselves or hate God or do a little bit of both. But the result is you're going to be spiritually crippled for the rest of your life. The Bible's never going to make sense to you. Church and worship never going to make sense. You're never going to ever truly be able to pick yourself off the ground. Never. But David begins by trusting what Nathan says. That his suffering, this affliction... Is not punishment. Then what? The second thing he learns when he's on the floor is that if it's not punishment, no matter how bad it is, it's got to be something else. And for David, it was surgery. Verse 14. I'm going to read verse 14. It says here, but by, because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son, son born to you will die. When you see the word translated for the word contempt, he says, you know, your enemies have shown utter contempt. It means to take, like, it means to take God lightly. It's the opposite of the word glory, contempt. It's the opposite of the word kavod, glory. To have glory, to have a sense of the glory of God is to sense God's reality. And when you sense God's reality, there's this weightiness, this tremendous weight and pressure, the heaviness of God. When you experience that heaviness of God once in a while in our lives, we, in a special way, probably experience that in a very real way, either by our sin or God's holiness or just by God's grace or his love, you experience the weightiness of God, the realness of God in our lives. What you're doing then is you're taking him heavily. Now, if you haven't taken them heavily, then you're going to take him lightly. And what Nathan is saying is that you have treated God as less real in your life. You and you've led other people in your life to treat God lightly. In other words, I know, David, you believe in God but they're just really insights. You're just looking for the insight. You know, the thoughts move you for a little bit, but it doesn't shape you. 
It doesn't change your life. For example, what kind of man so wants to sleep with another man's wife that he's willing to kill him for it? What kind of man would do that? Only a man who believes in God's beauty and love as a mere concept. But he's taking God lightly. Otherwise, he wouldn't be that empty. He wouldn't be that hungry. He wouldn't be that thirsty. He's taking God lightly. God's love is just something that he's reading in documents. God's love is just something that he talks about in community group, but there's no real change. The weightiness hasn't rested on him. What really shaped David's life during that time? It was power. In fact, Bathsheba was just an exercise of power. Having sex with Bathsheba was just an exercise of power. The feeling of masculinity, the feeling of kingliness, he felt significant when he, when he exercised power, when he sent men to their death. He felt like a king. When he got the woman that he wanted, he, he felt like a man because God was not the fundamental jo- source of joy in his life. That's the reality. He craved power, and he had exercise of power. It actually made him weak. He, David was a king, and yet it made him a slave. He became a slave to power. It's the way that we become slaves to our work. It makes us weak. We think we're growing. We think we're getting promoted. We think we're gaining wealth. We think we're accumulating materials. We think we have social power and connections and networking, and yet we're becoming weaker. It's the way that we become slaves to our children. We know that we're entrusted to take care of our children, to raise our children, and yet we become slaves to them. We become powerless to them. When they get sick, we feel powerless. When they get weak, we feel weak. Anything that we make an emotional God in our lives, the Bible says anything that we make an emotional, a motivational center in in our lives, we have to have this thing in order to feel significant in our lives. It becomes a subject of uncontrollable fear when something threatens it. Uncontrollable rage when something blocks it. Uncontrollable despair when we lose it. It makes us a slave. Now, David could have walked away from Bathsheba, but he couldn't. At the same time, he couldn't. You know why? Because he was a slave. Now, Abraham, if you look at the the Old Testament, one of the earliest narratives is this narrative about Abraham. Abraham waits decades to have a child. And when he finally got a child, he, he got Isaac, God says, you know what? It's going to be through Isaac that we're going to, I'm going to redeem the entire brokenness of the world. And then God says, I want you to surrender your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. Now that tears Abraham apart, just completely rips him apart. This child that he doted on, this child that he just absolutely loved, this child that he waited for decades to have, tears him apart. But Abraham is willing to sacrifice him. Do you know why? It's so that he would not become a slave to Isaac. That's why he knows. He knows this is surgery that God is doing in his life. And so he's willing to sacrifice him. Every counselor will tell you that when your child, that when you take your child and make him the center of your life, you know, uh, then work or church, these things are just going to revolve around children. Ladies and gentlemen, Sunday sports programs today in our world are killing the church as a result. They're killing the church spiritually. They're robbing the people of spiritual growth and maturity. 
All the joy, all of our meaning, it's going to suffocate that child ultimately. We think we're doing good for the child, but ultimately you're going to suffocate the child. You're going to suffocate the child under the weight of your expectations, under the weight of your needs. And what's going to happen is because you're weak, you're going to make them weak. They need a parent. They don't need a slave. I envision in in years and decades what's going to happen is as uh, we revolve uh, the true values of our homes, as we raise our children with our true values, our children are going to see those values year to year. And someday they're going to go to college. They're going to be out of your reach. And you know what's going to happen? The first thing you're going to say is, are you going to church? I mean, it sounds like you're having a great time in college, but are you going to church? And they're going to say, no, I'm not going to church. I, you know, I forgot. Initially, it's going to be excuses and, and I'm tired. But after a while, you're going to level with them. You're going to say, why aren't you going to church? And you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, you only went to church when you wanted to go. You know, I never saw you make decisions spiritually on any spiritual basis. And you have a wonderful house. You have a wonderful car. You have a wonderful job. You did it without any spiritual significance in your life. Why do I need to do that? That's going to be our children. You know, because you're weak, you're going to make your children weak. They need a parent. They don't need a slave. With Abraham, once he was willing to surrender, God said, you don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice him. Abraham, stop. But why doesn't he do this with David? And it's because David already lost his freedom. David already has become a slave. He's forgiven positionally. He's forgiven, but his life is an utter mess. Functionally, his life is an absolute mess. Internally, his life is a mess. And so he needs surgery. It's out of God's grace and his love. He knows exactly what David needs. And he knows that David, he's he's become a slave, and his life has just gone over the top, and he hasn't changed. He's still empty. So what God does is he comes to David and he says, if redemption is going to move forward, In your life, in your kingdom, in the world, throughout history, your son is going to have to die. And David is wrestling. He falls to the ground, and he's praying, and he's weeping, and he's rolling on the floor. But the thing is, he's able to get up. God must have said, you know, where you are, David, you are a slave. I need to take him away. Now, God is incredibly gracious. He says, I need to take him away. He's not going to suffer. He's going to just die. And he's actually going to be with me. David says, I will go to him, which means God must have said something in his rolling around, in his wrestling. God must have said, he will be with me. He's going to be with me. He's not going to suffer. He's going to be with me. I'm just going to take him right into eternity. I need to take him away. Although he may not feel but a sting, you are going to suffer terribly. But you're going to be free. You're going to find yourself again. And did it work? Yes, it worked. You see, because when he gets up, it's very, very interesting because most scholars that you read, if you read most scholars, whether from the liberal spectrum all the way to the conservative spectrum, they'll say up to this point, David was using everyone. David was using everyone. Bathsheba is just an object. Uh, Uriah is just an obstruction. Joab is just a tool. David's not a server of people. He's a user of people. But from this moment on, You know, David says something. Commentators will say, when David says, can I bring him back again? Can I bring him back again? He's not talking as a king anymore. He's not talking as a a man anymore. It says it's almost in the language of a child 
talking to his father, saying, can I please? Can I do this? I can't do this. You're seeing in this king the vulnerability, the brokenness. For the first time in a long time, in chapters, David's speaking not out of political motivation, but cosmic helplessness, cosmic helplessness, utter humility, brokenness. Before he's addicted to power, now he's vulnerable. And this is the hardest part of the sermon. I mean, it gets better from here on in. But people will tell you, anyone who's had any experience in spiritual maturity, if you go to somebody and, and who's mature spiritually and tell them about your suffering and ask for counsel for them, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, always, unequivocally, they're going to say, there's a tremendous link between your wisdom, your character, your compassion, even your joy, and your suffering. When you suffer, whether you realize it or not, whether you know in the moment or not, most of the time we don't know. There's a tremendous link between those two things. That's how it works. God comes to us and says, really, I hate to do this. It is bringing me anguish. And I'm going to show you. It brings me tremendous anguish. But I have to do the surgery because I love you. I'm gonna, you're going to have trouble in your life. And most of the time, you're not even going to know in the moment what that surgery is on, what God is really trying to free you from. You're going to try to figure it out. Most of the time, it's better sometimes to not. Psalm 39, sometimes it's better just not. Most people, sometimes months later, most of the time, years later, will come back and say, I see now how God has shaped my heart. I don't know why I still have to go through that. But I realized through the process, I've become more understanding of people. My pride has been broken. I'm a broken person. I, am, I used to be so self-sufficient, and I realized how helpless I am. I realized how much I've taken my health for granted. I realized how much of a slave I've become to my work or to my greed, to my pride, to my sense of worth, to my desire to protect my children. It has thrown me over the top. Psalm 39, that amazing psalm. And there are other psalms like it. Read Psalm 88. There is no redemptive uh, purpose in some ways. I mean, ultimately there is. But when you read Psalm 88, there is nothing about that psalm that says, God, I trust you. There's nothing about that psalm. We need psalms like that in the Bible. There's a reason why it's in the Bible. Psalm 39, it ends with, I don't even look at me, God. Just let me die. Just give me one ounce of peace because I am wrestling with you. I am shaking my fist with you. I am hurt. I am broken. I am beaten down. I'm rolling on the floor. Please just, just don't even look at me. Let me experience one ounce of peace before I die. That's what Psalm 39 is about. And yet we need that psalm because what that says is God wants us in a rawness. It's not the, con- you know, on one hand, you know, we're brought up in the church, especially Western civilization says, be stoic about your mourning. You ever go to a Western civilization wedding, an American wedding? I'm mean, sorry, a funeral? Have you ever been to a funeral like that here in the States? Everyone is very stoic. They almost hide their tears. You ever go to an Indian funeral? You ever go to an Eastern funeral? Sometimes you have to hold people back from throwing themselves into the funeral pyre. There is mourning and grieving and wailing. There is, you won't hear that kind of wailing. You've never heard that kind of wailing. That's, it's as if the person is afflicted and dying. It's that kind of rawness that God wants us to come with. 
because he understands. He knows. He understands. Or else it wouldn't be there. Because it's not some, you know, we get fixated on what the person's saying, but it's about the direction. He's still pointing to God. He's complaining, but he's complaining to God. He's mourning and he's wailing, but he's wailing towards God. He's screaming out towards God. The other thing we see here, even though David is not spiritually right, that's what you see. He's not, he's not faking it. He's not saying, oh, but you know what? I know there's a good purpose. God has all these things. All these things, there's a reason for it, and I, I understand that that's there. He's not going to fake it. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I know in the, in the future I'm going to be fine, so I'm just going to praise him. I'm just going to worship him. That's not what he says here. This psalm is so real, Psalm 39, he, and yet he never stops praying. The psalmist never stops praying. He's functionally a mess, but directionally he's still pointing. He's still complaining towards God. He never stops praying. If you turn away from God in your suffering, that makes you a very arrogant person. You know why? Because what you're saying is, because I don't see a reason for my suffering, a good reason must not exist. Is that good logic? Is that really good logic? Because I don't see it, there must not be a good reason. If you have a God that's great enough to rescue you, infinite enough in power to rescue you, and yet great enough and infinite enough that you could be mad at him, then you have a God that's great enough, infinite enough, wise enough to have reasons that you can't perceive, you can't possibly know right now. What's David doing on the floor? He knew it wasn't punishment. He knew it was surgery on the fundamental basis of his life, surgery that's going to make him wiser and fuller and richer and deeper and ultimately more joyful in the long run, but only if, one, he's on the floor and he's wrestling and praying, two, he's being raw and emotional and real with God, and three, yet he's still pointing to God. He's still clinging to God. He's still trying to trust, even if he has no idea what God is doing at the moment. Before he's incredibly manipulative of other people, maybe even of God. He's trying to control other people. God is in this box in his life, and yet now he's submissive. Can I bring him back? Can I do that? That's what he says. Verses 17 to 19, his friends are trying to help him. But it isn't until verse 20 that the recovery actually begins. Religious people, they'll say, you've got to be stoic in your suffering. Irreligious people, they mourn without any hope of recovery. Why? Because they don't have a basis. They don't understand. They may never understand. So they're either self-loathing or they're angry at God. The gospel teaches us that God knows, that God understands, that God wants to hear. And as a result, you can mourn. But at the same time, you can mourn with hope. There is an appropriateness in our mourning. David, at some point, gets up. He's clinging to God. And that begins his recovery. He's able to get up. He's able to move forward. And because he does those things in his prayer, on the floor, he's able to get up. Now, some of us are saying, not me, no way. That, if I was like that, no way. I'd be on the ground forever. I'd still be on the floor. Some of us are saying that right now. I haven't been able to recover. When David gets up, he tells us a secret. How does he really know that this isn't punishment, but God is actually working in his life, leading to greater joy tomorrow. David had to have heard two great assurances from God. And those two assurances stand for us even today. 
God specifically comes into his life. And he assures him of two things. One, we see it in verse 22. He says, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. He says, I will go to him. He will not come to me. He will not return to me. And the second thing is verse 25. God sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him. You know, David named him Solomon. God says, I want you to name him Jedidiah. We need those two assurances. What do those things mean? First, David says, I will go to him. He will not return to me. That's why he's able to get up. He says, I will go to him. Nathan assured David, you are forgiven. You are accepted. Now, that was a start. Trusted him. While he's on the floor, he's rolling around. And at some point, he says, is he dead? They say, yes, he's dead. He gets up. Servants say, huh? He says, you see, while I was on the floor and I was rolling and I was wrestling, I thought maybe God would be gracious enough to heal him. Just maybe. But then I was able to get up. He says, can I bring him back? I will go to him. God must have assured him that he would be in eternity. I will go to him. He will not come back to me. It was a tremendous assurance that he trusted that enabled him to get up. What he's really saying is that I am suffering right now. I am on the floor and I'm rolling around and I'm wrestling and I'm crumbling. But one day, even this suffering will be subsumed in a joy that will come. I will go to him. One day, even this suffering will be subsumed in an ultimate greater joy. He trusted in God's wisdom. I can't see it. I don't know why. But I know that this suffering will be subsumed in joy. I will go to him. He will not return to me. God came to both Abraham and he came to David and he said, Redemption will not go forward unless you sacrifice your son, unless your son dies. That's the only way I can get you back. That's terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. Some of us have gone through immense suffering in our lives. But you know, unlike any other God in history, unlike any other religion in history, the God of the Bible does not ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Only the God of the Bible has said to himself, redemption will not go forward unless I sacrifice my son. And he didn't hold himself back. He let him go. He completely let him go. God says, Abraham, your son has to die. Abraham offers it up. God says, no. David, God says to David, your son has to die. And uh, David ultimately gets up. David gets up, lets him go, basically. He's completely separated from his son, and he is in utter agony. But he never got to know his son. This is an infant child. never got to know his son. And God, on top of that, says, don't worry. He will be with me. He will be with me. In other words, you will go. You will go to see him. But when Jesus Christ came to earth, he died on the cross to pay the debt of our sin. The payment was what? Complete separation from God. Complete separation from God. The ultimate agony of the soul. So why on the cross, there was such agony. There was such separation. Jesus says, I thirst. And if Jesus is separated from his father, who he was one with, that means the father is separated from his son, who he's one with. That means God is thirsting. God is thirsting. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The one time in the Bible that Jesus does not refer to God as his father, which means that God also completely separated from his son. Jesus fell to the ground. Jesus wrestled and prayed at Gethsemane. He fell to the ground. He's wrestling with God. He says, take this cup, which represents God's wrath. Will you take this cup away from me? But not my will, yours be done. And he trusted God. He trusted his father. He loves the father. And he loves his people. And when he fell, he fell to the depths. Oh, Jesus fell to the depths. Jesus stayed on the ground. He was buried in the ground, wasn't he? But when he got up, as we saw in our word of encouragement, he rose to glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He rose to glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, and so shall we. One day we will become like the likeness of him, the man who, from, who is from heaven. We will be like Jesus. We will rise to glory. The father and the son on the cross experienced endless, complete separation. In a sense, both of them suffered Jesus suffered complete separation from the Father, which means ultimately hell. Hell is complete separation from God. That means on the cross, Jesus is suffering hell. You know what that means? God himself suffering hell. The loss, the oneness with his son. Complete separation. The agony, sacrificing his son. God is suffering. God is wrestling. He wants to hear her rawness. He understands loss. No other God in all of world history, is a God who experiences loss. Unlike any other religion, unlike any other God, no one ever lost a child the way God lost his own son. That's your assurance. It's far better than anything that David had. And that should change our view of suffering. That our suffering is not a punishment. You know why? Because Jesus Christ got all the punishment that we deserved. And and if he didn't, and there's more suffering that that is punishment, if God is being retributive to us, then he's not a just God. And he's not a loving God. So either God is loving and just, or he's not loving nor just. He sacrificed his love. He suffered for us because of his love, because of his justice. So once and for all, the debt would be paid. He poured it out on his son so that we would never have to suffer as a result of the punishment or the wrath of God ever again. If, not, if he hasn't done that, then he's not loving nor just. He's actually, he is cruel. He would be a cruel God. He had to die for you. And at the same time, he was glad to sacrifice. He was glad to make that sacrifice. He did it for the sacrifice. That should complete the, completely change the way we look at our suffering and completely change the way we look at other people. Without the gospel, you're going to still look at the world the way Job's friends look at the world. You're going to say, you know, you get what you earn. So when you suffer, you're not going to have an answer. You're not going to have an answer. You're going to say, well, you're a product of bad choices that you made. You deserve what you're getting. You deserve that. And when someday when people are on the floor and confused, And when you're on the floor and when you're suffering and when you're confused, you're never going to be able to get up because what's going to get you up? What's going to get you up than an understanding that God is a loving God and a just God at the same time? If you don't believe he's a loving God nor just, you will never be able to truly recover. There will never be any hope. But if the gospel has come in, if the gospel has come in, you're going to realize there's only two types of people in the world and they're both sufferers. Two types of people, they both suffer. 
There are people who build their trust on things other than God, their deepest trust. So when suffering comes, it's going to take away their joy, and it's only going to leave them in despondency. It's only going to make them despair more. It's going to make the despondency grow, the depression grow. They're going to be confused and angry because it's something that money will not be able to solve. Money will not be able to solve those problems. Your family will not always be there for you. Not when you are on the bed. They cannot. They cannot heal you. They can console you. They can be there for you, but they will not ultimately be there. There is no hope. There is only one hope. That's one type of sufferer. The other one, there are people who suffer, who seek to build their trust on God on the basis that he suffered the infinite suffering for us on the cross. And so God becomes the fundamental source of our joy. And when that suffering comes, it's going to drive us into deeper joy because we know, like David, there will be a joy that will subsume even today's suffering. It's going to drive us into a greater joy. It's going to drive us more into God, more into trust. We're going to wrestle. We're going to be on the floor. We're going to be raw. We're going to be real. And you can because that is what God wants and because he's doing some kind of surgery, whether you understand it or not. You don't have to seek to even understand it. You just need to wrestle and trust and pray and, and, and one day you'll be able to get up and recover because you know that even this suffering will be subsumed by the joy to come. You've got to see Jesus on the cross. And he stayed to the end in his suffering. That's what's going to get you off the ground. Now, there's one more thing. We talked about the joy subsuming, the joy subsuming the suffering. The text says, David got up, he worshipped. That is to say that he completely reoriented his life. Back to the Father. The surgery is taking hold. And then he went to comfort his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and he lay with her and they gave birth to a son named Solomon. He named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name the son Jedidiah. Now that is an amazing thing going on here. David had many wives and he had many children. And here he is agonizing over the loss of one of his children. You know what God does? He gives them another child. And David names him Solomon. You know what Solomon means? It means, I am at peace. He's recovered. He got up off the ground. He says, I am at peace. And he names the child Solomon. But God says, I'm going to do you one better, David. I want you to tell David to name him Jedidiah. You know what Jedidiah means? It means the Lord delights in him. The Lord loves him. Of all the marriages that David's had, Of all the children that David's had, this is the one through whom the Messiah will come. This is the one where redemption will come. David, here's a screw-up. He's a murderer. And yet God says, you see, you are forgiven. This is the child through whom I will heal the entire world. Bathsheba, You've got the scarlet letter on you. And yet your son, through this son, I will save the whole world. Jesus came out of that line. Salvation came out of that line. You know what that means? Tremendous hope for us. It doesn't matter who you are. 
It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. In Jesus Christ, we are all Jedediah. The Lord delights in us. The Lord delights in us. The Lord embraced us in Jesus. Because of the gospel, the Lord loves us. Can you experience the love and the delight and the embrace of God? And that means that no matter how bad you've screwed up, it's not punishment. That's the assurance. Every time you look at the cross, you are Jedediah. God had loved you so deeply, so immensely, so greatly that he had sent his own son to sacrifice, his own son to die for you. And that's part of his design to make you more like Christ. And so as a result, you become God's delight. That's going to humble you. The sacrifice, the cost, that's going to humble you. And yet the delight and the love, that's going to make you bold. And so that means that even, look at David, a sinner. And yet through that sinfulness, through the sinfulness, not despite it, through Bathsheba, through that union, God brings redemption to the whole world. What will he do through your sin? What will he do through your weakness? What will he do through your despair and your despondency and your wrestling? If you suffered, will you trust? Will you? Will you be able to get up? Because the Lord delights in you. Let's pray.